Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Amanda Shane. She is Deputy Director of the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with a little about what the League of Conservation Voters is and does in Connecticut. Absolutely. So we are a statewide bipartisan nonprofit, and we like to say that we are the voice of the environment at the Capitol. And that means we do a few different things. During election cycles, we identify and endorse candidates who are champions of the environment. During the legislative process, we track their votes and identify key bills that are up at the Capitol. And then afterwards, we hold them accountable by scoring them for the percentage of times that they vote for the environment. And all throughout this, we're educating members of the public and educating lawmakers about the environmental issues and about what's going on here in Connecticut and uh, even a little bit down in D.C. as well. I think it's more common to associate environmental causes with one political party versus the other, but you are nonpartisan, correct? That's correct. And we have champions and we endorse uh, lawmakers that are on both sides of the aisle, and we work really hard to make sure that uh, we are tracking legislation and doing things that both parties can find some common ground on, because the environment isn't blue or red. It's really for all of us. So what are the hot topics this year at the Capitol? Well, there's a lot. We have a lot of new champions. Um, you know, we flipped the state Senate last year from a split to a now a Democratic majority. And there's a lot of new lawmakers there who have some big priorities and big, big goals. Um, so we're tracking things like finally improving our, our bottle bill. Um, we're tracking plastic bag bans some wildlife trafficking bills like bans on ivory or importing some of those big six African species like the lions and elephants and such. Um, There's also a Green New Deal that the speaker is is starting to put together. And we haven't seen what that's going to look like yet, but we're certainly keeping an eye on it. Starting with the bottle bill, the governor and others have proposed expanding it to cover more types of containers. There have also been proposals to increase the deposit from a nickel to a dime. What are you hearing in terms of support for this? Because this has been proposed in past years and it hasn't made it over the finish line. That's correct. And really, it has to make it over the finish line. Um, We've been working with advocates and also with places like the redemption centers um, that are really struggling to stay open. We've seen a lot of redemption centers, the people that collect these these bottles, shut their doors in the last five years. And they're all going to go away if we don't do something, simply because their operating costs are too high and what they are getting for these, these plastic bottles is too low. And also the amount of uh, you know, drinks that are on the market now has expanded greatly, and yet the bottle bill hasn't kept pace. So as people are drinking soft drinks or juice or smoothies that come in plastic bottles, um, those are going unaccounted for. 
Now, it seems on the surface that Connecticut's single-stream recycling system is working well or has been working well in the idea that you even need deposits in, in some respect seems a little antiquated because everyone can just throw that soda bottle or whatever into the recycling bin in their home and it should be recycled. But there are some underlying issues that need to be addressed with that system, aren't there? That's that's a real problem for sure. Um, a lot of people think they're doing the right thing when they're tossing what they believe to be recyclable material into their, their containers, their blue bins. But so much of what ends up in the single stream recycling is not actually able to be recycled. And a lot of it is getting incinerated or moving to landfills. Um, and this problem is only worsened because we used to send a lot of our material to China. And they have said that, no, they don't want to take any of our waste anymore. Um, so that's just created these huge backlogs at facilities. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what people think they can throw into the single stream and what they can't. And so what happens is a lot of waste ends up getting contaminated. Um, and so it's just created a, a real problem. And it's definitely something that I think we need to be talking about moving away from. And recently we are hearing that cities and towns are making some noise about this because until fairly recently, they made money on the recycling system. You know, they, they collect it curbside and then they, they sell it and, and actually break even or, or make a profit. But that is changing because of what you mentioned, the idea that China is getting a lot more choosy about what recycled materials it accepts. That's absolutely true. So we need to look at a solution that would benefit us both economically, because obviously our state's in a hard position, but also environmentally, because we don't want this stuff ending up, you know, not just in our landfills, but in places like the Long Island Sound or the Connecticut River or anywhere else. Like this is a problem that we need to address on a few different fronts. So what is the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters proposal when it comes to expanding or, as you put it, modernizing the bottle bill? So it's not our proposal. I definitely want to want to make that clear. We work with a lot with the advocates. And, um, you know, Connecticut Fund for the Environment is, has had a lot to say in this. And so is the consumers uh, for... Uh, for sustainable Connecticut, and uh, they've really worked with the different groups to kind of put together different proposals, and they're they're still in flux. Um, but we are talking about increasing the amount that the deposits um, would bring in to ten cents, and uh, also increasing the um, the types of recycled materials that the uh, redemption centers would accept. You know, including things like sports drinks, including things like juice bottles. Uh, I know the governor mentioned um, those nips, those small alcoholic. Um, containers, that would obviously be something that we'd be interested in, but it's all a matter of what we think the uh, distributors will accept and what you think the redemption centers can take. And so it's definitely a, a process that's going to be going through a little bit of back and forth as we figure this out. I'm guessing you've heard it, but the criticism I've heard from more than one person is that, you know, it is a pain in the neck to, to take all those those bottles that have been used and gather them up and get your hands sticky and bring them to the grocery store or redemption center and get that nickel deposit. How how would you know supporters of an expanded bottle bill respond to that? Well, I think that's part of the reason why you want to exp uh, you know change what people are getting for them. Number one, give it a little bit more of incentive. Um, but you're right, like changes in behavior are really hard uh, to do. But we've seen it. We've done it before. People have moved away. You know from single-use plastic bags, for instance, into using reusable bags, even though there was a lot of concern over, but who wants to keep bringing back the same bag and it's really easy to forget? Um, you know, you, we can do it if it's worth the effort. And the fact of the matter is 
we have to do something about the plastic waste. There's just too much of it. It's a real environmental hazard. If we don't find ways to start you know, getting rid of this stuff in a responsible and sustainable way, um, it's going to make a major impact on our future. Now, on the bottle deposit law, what happens now with the money that is not redeemed by the consumer? So that's a really good question. Um, right now, it's a five cent fee, and it's going to these redemption centers. And it used to get kind of sidelined for specific uh, tax, and then it went into the general fund lately. And that's been a problem that a lot of people have have had with this bill, is that it no longer goes to specific programs. It's just going to plug budget holes, as with so much. Um, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of the distributors started to, to throw their hands up, because they weren't seeing some of the money go to their programs. And, um, you know, it's, it's one more challenge that Connecticut, in our whole budget mess, uh, has had to deal with. And you think about five cents a bottle right now, but it, there is a cost associated with operating the program and, and carting all that material, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And so what the redemption centers are getting, it hasn't changed since the '80s, and yet the costs continue to rise. You know, just think about your own bills. It's gotten more expensive to heat and cool your home, to run electricity in your home, while these redemption centers face the same type of rising costs, and yet they're not getting any additional income. From it, so that's been a real challenge, and a lot of the redemption centers are are shutting down as a result of it because they just simply cannot stay in business. Now, from bottles to plastic bags, what is being proposed on that front? So, there's been a few different things proposed on this front. Uh, we heard the governor talk about taxing plastic bags. Um, you know, we heard a ten cent tax. I believe he talked a little bit about in his budget address. But one of the things that the environmental community is really focused on is just an outright ban on plastic bags. And we've talked with the grocers, and they're on board with that. They think it's a neat way to go. Um, you know, makes it much less of a challenge. And same thing, you don't you avoid the problem of like this money that maybe should be going to sustainability efforts instead just going to plug general fund um, or just kind of disappearing into the ether. And uh, what we support is so an outright ban phased in over two years on those single-use plastic bags um, and then a, a tax on some of the paper bags so that ideally people are not switching just to paper, that there's a real concerted effort to go sustainable, to go with those reusable bags. Give us an idea with plastic in particular, what happens once one of those bags is disposed of? Well, the problem with those plastic bags is they, they can't be recycled, really. So ideally, you know, best case scenario, they end up in a landfill or incinerated. And that's certainly not a great case um, because we have too much waste. It's just sitting around right now. But all too often, it's ending up in places like our waterways, the Long Island Sound in particular. Um, it poses a choking hazard to a number of different marine species, including sea turtles, fish. Um, it can get trapped in uh, wastewater systems and cause backlogs or floods. So it's a real problem. Um, and Connecticut uses something like 400 million of these plastic bags in a year, um, and, and too many of them, over 80% never get recycled or turned into to landfills. So that means they're just kind of out there, um, unaccounted for, and causing a lot of trouble. If Connecticut bans plastic bags or imposes a tax, would we be breaking new ground here? Has any other state done that? 
We haven't seen uh, statewide actions, but we have seen a lot of different action at county levels um, and also towns. It's worth noting that there's been a big groundswell in Connecticut communities to to ban these bags. Uh, Westport and Greenwich and Stanford were among some of the first, but we've also seen places like Mansfield doing it, Stonington, and there's a whole lot of other towns. I know my, my town of Glastonbury uh, is considering what to do on this right now as well. There's a lot of research there. Um, and we're just seeing more and more towns to the point where we're pretty much adding to that list every day. So there's a groundswell of support within Connecticut. Um, other states, I know Maryland has certain counties that impose taxes on plastic bags. So uh, we would probably be one of the first states to do this. So there would be some nice leadership on that movement. But at the same point, there's also a tremendous community support. Now, wildlife trafficking, there's also legislation addressing that pending in the General Assembly. Why is that an important issue in Connecticut? Well, this is something that uh, there's a lot of bans on federal levels for certain things like ivory um, or shark fins has been a new one. There was a pretty powerful documentary showing what they, they do to sharks that they catch and remove the fins and then toss the sharks bleeding and still alive back into into the water. And so they cause a lot of federal action. However, the feds can't act um, unless there are state laws because once something enters the state and it's part of the state uh, process, uh, they don't really have a lot of jurisdiction. So you need state laws to, to complement the federal action. Um, and the thing is, we are a port state. We're a port of entry. Um, things enter Connecticut, um, whether it's pelts from things like lions or tusks from rhinoceros and, and elephants or those shark fins that get served in soup on a few like off-menu places in, in the shoreline, really. Um, these products are here, and they contribute to a huge poaching community that is funding terrorism. Um, it's funding organized crime. Uh, President Obama had recognized you know, wildlife tra- trafficking as a significant source of income for a few different groups. Um, so it's one of those things that like, we can do our part to put a stop to this. And that's not just good for the environment, but again, good for our public safety. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Amanda Shane. She's deputy director of the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters. One of the items you mentioned was ivory, and Mm -hmm. ivory is used in some antiques or was used in some antiques. And I know that has been one of the concerns raised by some at the state capitol. How do you not, you know, impede the antiques industry if you have an outright ban. Is there room for compromise? There is. And we've worked really hard to try and make sure that authenticated antiques are exempt from these types of um, bans. There's a challenge there and a line to walk because, you know, certainly once you create a law, somebody's going to try and, and find a way to exploit it. And so, you know, there is a lot of concern that people are going to be still hunting elephants and hunting rhinos and taking the ivory and trying to artificially age them and say, but look, see, it's antique. Um, it's totally fine. And, um, you know, as the science gets more sophisticated and the testing gets more sophisticated, you hope that that'll be ideal. But also you want proper documentation on these items, you know, real antiques and the real reputable antique dealers, museums, schools, research institutions. They really do their due diligence to try and make sure that what they're getting and what they're, they're trying to move is genuine. Um, so we believe we've, we've walked that line. One of the other issues important to the League of Conservation Voters is access to 
state parks, making sure the public has access and that these lands are preserved for this and future generations. How is that push going? I know the Passport to Parks program is still something that's new in Connecticut. How, how in your view, is that working out? Uh, I think it's working out really well. Passport to Parks was uh, you know, hugely popular, passed with bipartisan support. I think we all want to be able to enjoy these open spaces, whether you're somebody who's a hiker um, or whether you're somebody who's a fisherman. Um, our parks support a lot of different recreation, and um, it, the program has been very successful. It's helped us avoid having to, you know, create entrance fees or admittance fees to our parks or parking fees, um, which keeps them you know, open to everybody, which is what we want. One issue, and this is a $10 fee that is on registrations, vehicle registrations collected through the DMV. Mm-hmm. One issue is that some of that money, though, has already been taken for other purposes, the general fund in the budget and the the quest to make the numbers balance. Oh, yeah. We keep coming back to that. It happens. Uh, unfortunately, the environment um, and funds associated with it is often one of the first things to be targeted when it comes to closing the budget gaps. So, yes, and that's something that we've always opposed. You know, We really want this money to be used you know, how people want it to be used. They agreed to pass this fee and, and voted for it so that it can help support our park system, not just so it can plug another hole. We've talked a lot about initiatives that the League of Conservation Voters is in favor of. Are there any pieces of legislation at the Capitol that you're proposing or opposing, I should say, (laughs) things that maybe might roll back regulations, things like that? There are. um, You know, there's an important piece of legislation out there on consent orders, for instance, which is this weirdly technical um, kind of piece of rule keeping that uh, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, DEEP, uses. Um, DEEP is, is, as you may know, really underfunded and understaffed. And yet they're still working really hard to try and you know, impose all their regulations. Um, one thing they try to do is if they find somebody who has unknowingly maybe violated uh, a law, instead of immediately snap, slapping them with a fine or you know, send, sending some kind of punitive damage, um, they issue this consent order where they try to come to an agreement and say, listen, you clean up your act, maybe you pay a little bit less in the fine, and um, we'll agree, we both consent, that this is what, what the punishment or the action is going to be. Um, and unfortunately, in the past, there's been a couple of bad actors, um, including some big chemical companies that really damaged the environment, polluted some, some pretty serious drinking water, um, said, okay, we're going to clean it up, then didn't. Um, so the deep said, okay, well then we're pulling this order and you are going to go ahead and start moving forward with punishment. Um, and what happened was some of the legislators in the area of that chemical company said, well, we really don't want you to be able to just revoke a consent order. You shouldn't be able to do that. Both parties need to be able to agree to this. Well, if one party violated it, it really shouldn't be able to say, no, 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 <laughs> you, you can't pull this away. Um, so it's one of those weird technical things that we're fighting against really hard. It's a valuable tool. A lot of people have used consent orders um, for good. You know, they've they've done the right thing. You know, a lot of times when someone violates a regulation, it's not intentional, um, or they realize what happened and they wor- want to work with deep and with the state to fix this and make it better. So that's something we're opposing. Um, we're also right now very strongly opposing a bear hunting bill that's going through the environment committee. Uh, we have a very small black bear population in Connecticut. We already allow um, you know, the hunting of any nuisance bears that you know, are getting into people's property or destroying crops or are threatening in any way. And 
we really can't support the dedicated hunting that some people want to push. Um, it would just devastate the bear population. Are there other ways to help control the bear population? Because it seems there are more run-ins with humans and bears recently. We're, we're hearing of stories of bears breaking into houses and cars, and it, it seems that that isn't going away. Are there other ways to control the bear population that uh, are outside of hunting? Absolutely. There are a lot of education-based initiatives that can that can do a lot of good um, because Honestly, a high percentage of the time, you know, bears are getting into things because people are leaving out garbage or there's bird feeders that aren't properly secured and it's attracting bears. Um, so we see a lot of success with environmental issue, uh, sorry, with education-based approaches. Yosemite Park actually had, had problems with bear-human conflicts and they implemented an education-based strategy and they saw those conflicts drop by 92%, um, which is a far better result than we've ever seen with hunting. And the fact of the matter is deep woods hunting isn't going to keep a bear out of the suburbs. Like Those bears are already where they're supposed to be. Is the proposal only for bear hunting in parts of Connecticut? Right now, it's only in Litchfield County, um, although we have heard chatter that people want to expand it to to other parts of Connecticut. What do our neighbors do in terms of bear hunting? Do they allow it? Some states do, some states don't. But you know, we saw, for instance, in New Jersey, they started to open up uh, bear hunting, and the results were catastrophic. It was, The first year was way overhunted, and they had to immediately correct that and realize that they, they actually could not go this route. Um, and they have far more bears than us. Really? New Jersey, south of here, has far more bears. <laughs> yeah, they do. Now, how would you say Connecticut is doing overall in, in protecting its natural resources and its environment? I think we're doing very well. Um, you know, we have a governor now who ran partially on an environmental platform. He spoke at our environmental summit in January and committed to moving Connecticut to zero carbon, um, you know, which is key to our fight against climate change. Um, we have legislators that are really committed to, you know, going again to 100% clean energy, to, you know, including climate change education in school, to passing bans on things like plastic bags. Um, I think that we are, we are really a leader in the nation. And that's also reflected in our federal level. We've seen our senators um, vote 100% of the time for, for pro-environment um, initiatives in the last session in Congress. And, and our representatives um, get you know, scores in the 90s from our, our national chapter. And the challenge is that they're facing you know, a president and an EPA that is trying to roll back regulations and invest in coal instead of clean energy. And you know, they face their challenges on the federal hill. But, but here in Connecticut, I think we're all on the same path. We all realize that this is a serious problem, that we have a big opportunity to do something about it, and that we're committed to doing it. How do you counter the argument that, you know, Connecticut is such a small state? How can we make a difference globally in protecting the environment? Well, one way we do it, number one, is we, we do act as a leader, right? We have the opportunity to pass laws first and inspire some of our neighbors. But also, we don't work alone. You know, Connecticut is very connected to our neighboring states in New England. We've already done things um, like REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, to say that as a region, you know, all of these New England and mid-Atlantic states, we all want to bring our emissions down. We all want to bring down carbon uh, pollution. So by teaming up with our neighboring states, um, we can really have a, a much more impactful presence. 
And if people want to learn more about the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters, what can they do? Uh, they can visit us online at ctlcv.org. Uh, they can also join our mailing list right there on the, the homepage, and we send out alerts about important legislation or events that you can participate in or ways to contact your, your state and federal lawmakers. In fact, you do a report card every year of uh, the voting records of Connecticut's representatives at the State House and on Capitol Hill, correct? Absolutely. Our national scorecard just came out um, a couple weeks ago now, and our you know, upcoming state card will be out once the session ends, which, you know, hopefully will be June, but could go late again. <laughs> she is Amanda Shane, Deputy Director of the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.